Well, good morning, everybody. How are you doing this morning? Yeah, I, I expect people online also to speak back to their television and, and actually, like, engage with us. Um, this morning, we are going to... Uh, I'm just going to put my timer on just to bless you all. <laughs> Over the past several weeks, Pastor Tamil and myself have been like, essentially trying to paint a picture for, for all of you of what the Bible actually says that the church is and why anyone would actually consider being part of the church. Essentially, we, we've been exploring like a really simple yet profound question. Why church? Like, what's really the point of all of this? Why did you all get up this morning to join us? Like, you're having to wear a mask. You're having to social distance. Like, why on earth did you join us this morning and take this time uh, on a Sunday morning? Like, what's the point? Are we all just crazy? Why is gathering and then scattering, and I'm going to explain that, so important? in the New Testament. At this point, we've been predominantly like exploring answers to this simple question using Luke's writing in the book of Acts, and predominantly we've been using Acts chapter 2. And we've explored the concept of, of the Greek word ecclesia, which essentially means an assembly of people. It's a really commonly used Greek word that isn't just used to name the church. It means an assembly of people. It's a common first century word. But when it is used in the scriptures to reflect God's people, meaning the church, it represents followers of Jesus who gather together. Now, this is important. Not just followers of Jesus who gather together. It's not just about getting together. It's actually about getting together under the authority of God in order to worship and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our King. This is important. It's not just about gathering. It's the whole point behind gathering, that Jesus died and now he's alive and we want to worship him because of his resurrection because he's the creator of heaven and earth. Now, I'm going to let you know my motive behind this series has actually been really simple. I'm really, truly concerned that the North American church has lost its identity. I'm really, truly concerned that the North American church has lost its identity. I'm also equally concerned pastorally that Evergreen Heights has lost its identity in Christ. I'm convinced that many Christians today, especially today, have moved Jesus off to the side. So it's like Jesus is still there. He's still kind of part of our lives, but we're actually focusing on other things, like getting back our liberties and things like that. And so Jesus is sort of like put over here as we focus on the things that we need and that we want. In other words, I'm convinced that many in the church today have not actually become disciples of Jesus Christ have not actually become disciples of Jesus Christ who are fully convinced and fully convicted. That's a key word there. Fully convinced and fully convicted that he died and he rose again. I think we started out with the right motives, but that we've lost our way. And in this COVID period, it's been accelerated. This process of Jesus no longer being at the center of the church's identity. How do I know this? Why do I think this? Well, it's actually simple. Talk to people who don't know Christ. The church has lost its witness because we have lost the core of our identity. In other words, the church is actually, biblically speaking, no longer the church. It's become something else that it was actually never meant to be. 
There was a, a preacher and a church history scholar who was actually one of Pastor Tamil's uh, history, church history professors. His name is Dominique Russo. I've, mess- I've uh, referenced him a couple times throughout this series. He used this analogy actually with his congregation when he was talking about how the church has lost its identity. Now, don't email me about the theology of all of this because we're going to talk about hamburgers. So if you're like a vegetarian or different things like that, don't, don't email me about any of that kind of stuff. This is just simply an analogy. So I want you to hear how this analogy plays out. It's really just the story of a young couple with a dream, a really simple dream. They make the best hamburgers in the world. And so they want to, which makes sense, open a hamburger joint. And their dream actually one day becomes true. It becomes a reality. They get to open their own shop, their own hamburger joint. And so they buy a big sign, right? Because we need, we need advertising. You've got to let everybody know what you are, who you are, what your identity is. And so they buy a big sign and they thought, let's just keep it simple. We're going to call our hamburger joint hamburgers. Right? So they open up a hamburger joint. The sign says hamburgers. And the reason for this is because that's their identity. They sell hamburgers. Actually, they believe they sell the best hamburgers that anyone could ever imagine. And their opening day and their opening weeks were a huge success. The people loved their hamburgers. Everybody in town was talking about how amazing their hamburgers were. They were so amazing that the people couldn't help but tell everyone about their experience at this burger joint. And then one day, as things are going along, everything's awesome. They have the best hamburgers in town. Everybody's talking about them. Some agree, some disagree. But the, the fact of the matter is, is everybody knows that they exist and everybody knows that they make hamburgers. And then one day, a customer comes in and they line up and they get up to the cashier and they say, do you sell wraps? And the couple's like, oh boy, we kind of just sell hamburgers. Like, that's really what we do. That's really our identity. Like, we're known for our world-famous hamburgers. Like, but you know what? Like, okay, we, we don't want to, we want to please the customer, right? And so, you know, we'll go in the back and we'll figure this out and we'll, we'll whip you up a wrap. Now, the sign out front clearly says a burger joint, not a wrap joint. But in order to please the customer, they go into the back, they round up the ingredients, and they make the person a wrap. And a few days later, someone else comes in, and they ask for, you ready for it? Not a burger, but a wrap. Because somebody had told them that this hamburger joint had the best wraps in town. So they, they go back in and they make another wrap. And this trend continues and more and more people are coming in and they're asking for their wraps rather than their hamburgers. And another customer comes in one day. So now they're kind of like a wrap and a hamburger joint. I think that's a rap song. Anyway... And then another customer comes in one day and says, actually, like, do you have fruit smoothies? This was a millennial, <laughs> right? So the millennial or Gen Z walks in, do you have a, a like, the wraps are actually a little fattening. Do you have a fruit smoothie? Well, they don't, they don't actually sell fruit smoothies, right? Right now they just sell still hamburgers, it says on the sign. But they're like, you know, in order to please the customer, to give them what they want, because the customer's always right, right? Let's go in the back and let's whip up a fruit smoothie. And more and more people start coming into this hamburger joint looking for the fruit smoothies. And next thing you know, people are ordering wraps and fruit smoothies and completely ignoring the hamburgers. But yet the sign says hamburgers. They have the best hamburgers in town. You see how trying to please the customer rather than staying to your identity can stray you off into something you never meant to be? 
It's a great analogy, folks, of what has actually happened, specifically in the North American church. Like, like at first, people would come to church and they would gather to find people, other people who represented Christ in this world. And yet now, churches are known for all kinds of things. Like, for instance, you know, someone at some point was like, well, you need to care for your teenagers. You need to start a youth group. So not only are you this gathering group of people where people can find Jesus-like people, but you need to like find a youth group. And I know as a youth pastor, I can tell you the, the amount of times that I had parents call me and literally say, we're not asking you to teach our kids the Bible. We're asking you to keep them entertained. Help our kids have fun because then they'll want to come to church. And so... We start a youth group and we have a rocking youth group. It's amazing. And so now we're known as the church with that amazing, fun youth group. And then some churches, they, they think, you know, marriage is actually really important. And so the church develops a special marriage program. And they've put a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of resources into this. The, the love of Jesus is part of this program. But actually what happens is, is the church is no longer really recognized for a place to find Jesus. It's recognized as a place to fix your marriage, which in itself is fine, except that if you're fixing your marriage and not finding Jesus, it's not fine. So the church becomes known for its marriage programs rather than its Christ-centeredness. Now, all of this is great. All of this is fine. It's good to put on these programs. There's nothing wrong with the programs. But in the beginning, folks, the church was actually really simple. It was known as a place where you could find Jesus. It was known as a place where you could find Jesus because the people in it passionately represented him in this world. Our hamburger joint has become a special buffet that aims to please the wants of people instead of just focusing on having the best hamburgers in town. We've become a buffet full of options and the hamburger has been pushed to the side. Now, don't email me because I just called Jesus a hamburger. You get my point. So my entire motive, folks, behind this series is to help us become a burger joint again. To help us remember why this whole thing actually started in the first place. But in order to do this, we actually need to develop a deeper theological understanding of what the Bible actually teaches the church identity to be. And you can't pluck individual passages out to learn what this is, because you can turn the church into a lot of different things if you pluck out obscure passages, especially from the Old Testament. It's awesome. People do it all the time. It's not awesome. It actually sucks, because you're misusing scripture and you're not understanding. Your theological framework is being built off of things that aren't attached to the overarching narrative. That's the key thing that you got to understand, folks. What the church is doing should be attached to the overarching narrative of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We need to learn how the Bible model, what are the models of the church in the Bible? And in order to start with this, folks, we actually need to go back into the Old Testament. As Jesus knew the Old Testament as the Hebrew Scriptures, and Jesus never once quoted Paul. Right? He only quoted the Hebrew Scriptures, not the New Testament as we now know it. The Christian church has actually always stressed its historical and theological continuity with the people of Israel. That's important. We are connected to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. It's actually the beginning of God's church. It's not necessarily in the book of Acts. It's actually in the book of Genesis. So I got to give you a quick history lesson. You good with that? You good to talk about like things of the past? I know some people have been posting, you know, the past is the past. Let's leave it be the past, except the past teaches us what the future is going to look like, right? And the past helps correct mistakes that we've made 
in the past. And so the past actually matters, and so we need to talk about the past in order to get the right context to move forward for the future. So how Israel understood its identity is actually rooted in three different historical phases. And it's important for us to actually understand the progression of the Jewish faith in order to understand how the church came to be. And I'm going to give you a little hint. It progressively changes, just like the church has progressively changed. So any folks that are like, this is the way we do church. Well, history says there's been lots of ways that we've done church all the way back to the history of Israel. So there's three main phases that the nation of Israel went under attached to their identity. And the first phase of Israel's existence was from 1250 to 1000 BC. And this era lasted until the founding of the monarchy under King Saul. Now, now during this period of history, now I'm going to only be giving you like a really quick overview of this. There's, I could do like a whole year series in this. But during this period of history, Israel existed. I, I want you to hear this. Israel existed for several hundred years without a temple, without priests, without sages, without prophets. Its identity as a people was not defined through institutions, but a common commitment. You, you ready for this? Israel, for over 200 years, was defined through a common commitment to Israel's central story. There's that story thing again. They were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was their root identity. This is how they would describe themselves. It was the story of how God provided for their ancestors and would continue to provide for them as well. It was the common story that rooted the people in their Jewish faith. This story was what their identity was, how God provided and how he would continue to provide through them and their ancestors. And hundreds of years, this is how they existed. And then the second phase came, and this is one of the longest phases of Israel, and it's probably the one that we would be the most common with, but it was actually from about 100 BC to about 587 BC. So BC, any kids in here or adults that just don't know, the numbers get smaller, right? And, and AD, they get bigger. Now, during this long period, a lot actually changes. It changes how the Jewish people actually find their identity. It was no longer based on this simple story of the past, although that was still there loosely. Now, this period ended with the Babylonian captivity of the people of Jerusalem. Israel was now governed by a monarchy no longer governed by God. So Walter Brueggemann, one of the leading Old Testament scholars of our time, he's still alive. I think he's like 700 years old, but he, he's still alive. Uh, and he's one of those crazy-haired, old, smart dudes. And he points out four distinct features of this specific era in which Israel attempted to maintain their identity. So remember, it was originally uh, about their forefathers, and their identity in God providing. And now what it's shifted into is these sort of four main points. The temple. So the temple never existed. For hundreds of years, temple never existed. Now they have a temple. And in that temple, they have priests. And what these priests do is they actually provide legitimate and stable leadership over quite a long extended period of time in the history of Israel. And they have a king. But I want you to hear something about the king. This is what Walter Brueggemann says. The king provided essentially secular leadership of the nation, while at the same time being committed to the same religious ideas and values as the temple and its priests. I want you to hear that, how he distinctly separates that. So what he's saying is, is they have a Jewish king who's leading in a secular way, even though he knows all the values of the temple and its priests. 
And then the point three, he says, is the book of Proverbs. It, that didn't need to exist earlier because there was no such thing as sages, but now there is this group called sages, these sort of smart people. And that's affirming the Western notion of the need for intellectual legitimacy to a nation. And then during the, this era, we also got prophets. And the prophets represented a means of divine guidance at points of particular difficulty and turbulence. Now, each of these four points that Walter Brueggemann makes, I want you to note something. They are actually what began to shape what we know as our modern society today. And so they shifted from God being their king, having no earthly king, to having an earthly king that's running things in a secular way, but he's kind of Jewish. Now, back up for, with me for a second. Just try to track with me here. Everything in the Bible starts in the garden, where we live in perfect harmony with God, and then sin happens. We all know this story. And we leave the garden to establish our own way of life under sin. That's important to understand. From the garden moving forward, we have been under sin the whole time. But God gives us the opportunity to become connected to him again by influencing and providing for our ancestors. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for hundreds of years, the faith of the Jewish people were just centered on these stories of provision and hope. And then one day, you can see this in the book of Samuel, one day the people ask for a king like all the other nations. And so God allows the people to do what they want, and he gives them a king, just like all of the secular nations. So this is the Jewish people literally asking to be structured just like the world. So things move from being rooted in a story into the Jewish people becoming much more institutionalized and with political leaders, a temple, priests, sages, and prophets. So some people argue, you know, we should go back to the time of the story. Like, good, good luck with that in an institutionalized world. And it's thousands of years old that religion was institutionalized. So a lot happens over this era, historically, during this time. And I just really don't have all, a lot of time. You could read books on it. Uh, but there's some key historical events that move the Jews now into a new era. And this new era is called the Second Temple Era. Now, after Babylonian captivity that I mentioned earlier, the Jewish people return uh, from exile. You can watch Veggie Tales if you need to know about the Babylonian captivity. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all that, all that kind of stuff. Uh, if you really need to know uh, Nebuchadnezzar, all of those uh, stories, it's actually really, really accurate. Um, but he essentially destroyed their initial temple and now and, and booted the Jewish people out. And now uh, they've been conquered, and so the Jewish people are allowed back into Jerusalem, and they rebuild their temple. Uh, and in this final era of the Old Testament, the Second Temple era, we see that the nation of Israel was much smaller. Now that's interesting, right? Because as soon as we were exiled, we be, the, the Jewish people became smaller. COVID-19, Christianity, they say, has become smaller. Look around the room. Remember two years ago? Today we're allowed 60 people, and we, I think we have 42. No one's rushing to come back for multiple reasons, but probably because Jesus is over here. If you're joining us online, I still consider you back. Because that's okay, we can gather in multiple different ways. But if you're watching on Wednesday, all by yourself, that isn't gathering. So this final era, Old Testament, we see that Israel's much smaller and they had a serious problem in maintaining their identity. The reason they're having a problem maintaining their identity is that they face occupation. Initially, it was by the Persians 
and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. And this is the era that we find the New Testament. So this is the era that the Jewish people are in at the beginning of the New Testament church. So now, like they're, they're very influenced. Like this is important to understand because the New Testament church, it, it comes from these people. It's affected by culture and the Jewish story is becoming shaped by the culture. We notice this all the time because things change over the years. Different cultures have impacted how the Jews shape their identity, and there's all kinds of opinions on what their true identity of the Jews actually is. Historically, they were known as God's people, set apart by God as his children. And they're still claiming this in the Second Temple era, but they are much more institutionalized and influenced by the Persian, Greek, and Roman culture. Does, it, does any of this sound familiar? Culture affecting religion? The culture influencing God's people in a, way, in a way that pulls them away from their original identity of being rooted in God's provision of the past. And so this is where Jesus comes in. God needed to refocus his people back to its historical roots by offering us salvation. They'd lost their way, and so Jesus came to guide them back. That's why his life and his teachings matter. Everything about Jesus should be looked at by us as Christians because we're Christian means Christ-like. So, so without forgetting all of the history of the Old Testament, let's take a quick look at how Jesus and the New Testament writers actually now begin to shape the theology and identity of this new thing that we call the church. They called it the way, people of the way, which is completely, folks, actually rooted in the Old Testament. So you can't just get rid of the Old Testament because how they shape the theology of the church is actually rooted in the past. Now, there are essentially, now you're kind of going to be in a little mini seminary class for now, okay? So I know you might get bored, but this is actually really super important stuff. There are essentially five ways that the New Testament identifies the church as we know it. Now, the book of Acts shows us like some of it, but today we're going to actually be pulling out and using a bigger picture of the entire New Testament. So I'm gonna give you actually New Testament theology of the church. We would call it ecclesiology. Now the first piece, there's kind of five key ways that the Bible describes the church. The first piece of the church's identity is rooted in the church as God's people. Now this is actually historically interesting because Israel's God's people. So if Israel's God's people, how could the church now be God's people? Like, this is, this is super important. The church, as we know it today, is literally, in Scripture, the people of God. Just like Israel, the church today shares the same identity as the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul emphasizes this in Galatians chapter 3. He also emphasizes it in Romans. He emphasizes it all over the place. But I chose Galatians 3, 6 to 9 because it's shorter. Listen to Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 9. In the same way, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. So it was attached to a nation. But now Paul says that the real children of Abraham actually are those who put their faith in God. What's more, he said, the scriptures look forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles, that would be most of us, right in his sight. Why? Because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share, you ready? The same blessing 
Abraham received because of his faith. So what does this mean? The church as an identity has been chosen or called to be the people of God. Just as God called Israel in the past. First Peter. We might as well go to an apostle, right? First Peter, my, my buddy, my favorite apostle. I love Peter. He's constantly messing everything up. It's perfect. First Peter chapter two, verse nine. But you're not like that. So he just like listed off all these horrible things that we used to be, right? Before we knew Christ. He said, but you're, you're not like that anymore. For you are chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Folks, if you're part of the church, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you're a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. Listen to what Peter's saying. As a result of this, then what is this chosen nation supposed to be doing? Show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. And so the church is not just some group of people who have developed friendships and put on cool social events. The church is literally, folks, God's chosen people who have been called out of the darkness of this world and into the light of Jesus. This leads me to the second way that the New Testament identifies the church. Folks, we're only in the first way, and I already got chills up my spine. You are the people of God. You're not just like people that hang out together and be friends and, and like do social things. Like we, we actually don't even do any of that very well. You're literally chosen royal priests pulled out of the darkness and given the light. The second is that the church is literally God's community of salvation. This means that we're people who have responded to God's work of salvation through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And therefore, we can't help but proclaim and extend God's work of the cross to the world. Remember the burger joint? The best burger in town? You can't help but recommend that burger to your friends. This is the church. That's what being a community of salvation means. You're saved and you live like you're saved. The New Testament literally describes the church folks as the body of people that have been called to bear witness as the salt and light of the earth, the light of the world. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five. You're probably all really familiar with this, but I want it to just soak in because this is talking about you. Matthew chapter five, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. Now our culture says salt's bad. I don't know about you, but I put it on stuff and it's pretty awesome. My doctor may say it's bad. You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Like, why would you put something on food that doesn't change a thing? Right? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You're the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one, listen to this, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Do you see that connection? As the good deeds, because we're, we're supposed to be doing those, as the good deeds shine out, let them shine out so that everyone, meaning those who don't know Christ, will praise your heavenly Father. The church, folks, has been charged with the responsibility as a community of salvation to go out and to make disciples. 
Matthew 28, 19, like we beat this to death, don't we? But we need to listen to it. Therefore, go and make disciples. It doesn't say, therefore, go and create awesome creative programs that entertain the kids. It says, go and make disciples of who? Like all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is not an optional calling. It is a literal part of the identity of who the church is. So I had a conversation the other day with a good friend of mine who said, who's in charge of outreach at the church? And I said, everybody that comes to the church. What did I mean by that? You see, folks, we don't just put on outreach events. We literally live outreach as a way of life. So we don't have to have a coordinator of outreach because if you profess Christ, you are a coordinator of outreach because you're shining your light and spreading the salt. We literally live a life of outreach. Everything about the people of the church should scream, Jesus is Lord. Brings me to my next point. The church as the body of Christ. Gotta be honest, this imagery weirded me out when I was first a Christian. I was like, what do you mean? I'm like the body of Christ. It's kind of freaky. I'm part of his body. Like, doesn't he have a full body? Like he was Jesus in, in the flesh, right? Like, doesn't he have a well, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I want you to listen really intently to this because it tells us something very important about the identity of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 31. I'm way over time. Oh, well. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. Makes sense, doesn't it? Now, Paul's, Paul's going to explain this. He said, so it, is with, so it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we're, we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Yes, Paul says, the body has many parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I am not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if the whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. I want you to understand something. God has put each part just where he wants it, not us. How strange, Paul says, a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require this special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care be given to those parts that have less dignity. Interesting. This, he says, makes for harmony among the members, so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it, and if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. Folks, all of you together are Christ's body. Separated, not so much. Together, we are Christ's body, and each of you has a part in that body. Now, here are some parts, he says, uh, that God has appointed for the church. First, our apostles. Second, our prophets. So these are, these are part of the body that he's appointed, okay? Third, our teachers. 
than those who do miracles, those who have the gifts of healing, those who can help others, those who have the gift of leadership. That would, I would instill that not everybody actually has the gift of leadership, so therefore not everybody's a leader. Those who speak in unknown languages. He's saying that these are all parts of the body that function as the body of Christ. He says, are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret unknown languages? Of course not. So you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. But God appoints those gifts not us. And then he says, but let me show you a way of life that is best of all. Now, I'm not going to get into that, that passage, but I'll give you a little hint. The way of life that is best of all is the way of love. In other words, if the body parts are functioning on all cylinders, it means they're functioning bathed in love. The church is the body of Christ in a broken world. And we all have to function as part of the body. This is why it's so important for Christians to serve in the church and in their community. They are literally, you're literally, when you're serving, just literally fulfilling your role as being part of the body of Jesus. And there is no age restriction. You don't like tap out and retire from being part of the body of Christ. Everyone serves if you're part of the body. And that leads me to the next. The church as a servant people. Once more, this image emphasizes the continuity between the old and the new covenants. They're not separated. They're, they're actually intertwined. And God chose and called Israel to serve him in the same way God chose and called the church for service. Now, the two main Greek words for church leaders specifically is doulos, which means servant, or possibly even a slave. So you hear Paul say, I'm a slave for Christ. That's what he's talking about. I'm a servant. And then there's another word that they also use in the New Testament called diakunos, and it means someone who waits at a table. Not someone who waits on a table. It actually means somebody who waits at a table. Paul, Paul puts this into perspective. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. He said, you see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. So he's talking about leaders in the church, right? We don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord. Can I get like a charismatic hallelujah right there? Yeah, we preach that Jesus is Lord. We don't preach about ourselves. We preach that Jesus is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. Now, whenever the New Testament uses these words to describe its leaders, it's always in the context of the leaders serving Jesus first, and in turn, serving the people by pointing them to Jesus. Our culture has really done a number on this. Many believe that pastors and elders and leaders in the church are serving their needs as the church. But in the context, actually, of the New Testament, that's not exactly how it's described. The leaders are called to serve Jesus and serve the church by pointing the church toward Jesus. If you look at Israel's history, a shepherd cared for the flock by leading them away from danger and teaching them when it's safe to graze and when they need to move on. Now, the final part is the church as a community of the Spirit. Now, we've talked quite a bit about this, so I won't hammer into that too much. But the entire reason, folks, that we are able to be God's church, be these other four things, in a broken, messed up world that's full of darkness is because the church is spirit-filled people. It's the spirit 
that reminds us that we're sinners and we need Jesus. It's the spirit that enables us to witness about Jesus to the world. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 30. He says, and do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. That's interesting, right? The way you live can actually bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit. But he says, do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is the mark of the church. He is the seal of our redemption and the entire reason that we are actually able to be the church. The way we live either pleases the Spirit or it brings him sorrow. When we live our call to make disciples and, and, our, and our lives serve Jesus, the Spirit is pleased. Now, the, these five models are how the New Testament describes and identifies the church. They're, they are our burger menu that, that help us on track within the identity God has given us as the church. We're God's people who live in the reality of his salvation, proclaiming his resurrection to the world by being his literal body here on earth, serving one another and our community by showing a radical, non-judgmental love and living our lives convicted, transformed, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So why church? It's simple. We go to church so that we can gather with others who live and believe that Jesus died and now he lives. We gather to worship together our amazing God who provides. Then we go out to be the church so the world can know the good news that Jesus lives and saves and transforms us into the people of God chosen to be set apart from a world that is full of darkness. The church is the light of the world. Christ's literal body here on earth, we are his ambassadors called to serve the world with love and grace. People should be coming to church because we serve the best hamburger. Not wraps, not smoothies, but hamburgers. In other words, the church is where you should be able to find Jesus. It's where you can find grace and love and it's where you can find salvation. But the church is not just a meeting on Sunday morning. It's a community of people who live within different communities of people. You guys can come on up. Place there to share Jesus with the world. The church, as the New Testament describes, is a way more than, than a place. It's... The church that Jesus describes in the New Testament is a way more than a place to find, it's way more than a place to find friends. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it's way more than a place to be entertained. It's way more than a place to create awesome programs. The church are God's people who live in the reality of his salvation, proclaiming his resurrection of the world by being his literal body here on earth, serving one another in our community by showing this non-radical, non-judgment, this, this radical love and living our lives convicted and transformed by the Holy Spirit. Being the church cannot be done by just creating cool programs. It can only be done by faith and being completely sold out that Jesus died and now he lives. Folks, we're people of the resurrection who have been given salvation through the work of the cross and we live every moment of our lives as radically saved disciples of Jesus. The early church understood this 
They formed a community of people who dedicated their lives to the apostles' teaching, to breaking bread, to caring for one another, the passage that Pastor Tamil taught last week. But we find that passage incredibly difficult, and it's very simple why. We live in a culture of individualism. Our culture has affected us to be all about what we want individually, to build ourselves up as individuals. They didn't have this individualistic mindset in the first century like we do. They understood what being a village was actually all about. We really struggle with this. And so folks, it's my prayer this morning that the Holy Spirit would knock down the wall of individualistic nature, of our individualistic nature. That he would knock down the wall of individualism and open our eyes to Jesus and the community that he calls us to live in. And it's my prayer that he would help us to move Jesus back to the center of the church and the center of our lives. Not to be fighting for constitutional rights, but to be preaching Jesus to the world. calls us to repentance for what we have made the church to be. And so I'm calling you folks to repentance for what you have made the church be. We've all done it because we come from an individualism culture. We all want what we want and we want what we think is best for we, me. Even the best of us are like that. So we need to repent of it. And we need to become actual worshipers again. Because worship is not just a song that we're about to sing. Worship is your entire life. Call us, Lord, back to the heart of worship. Will you stand with us as we just sing one last song? I know I'm way over time today, but... It's the end of a series. And so I had to just get it all wrapped up. We just take a little bit of time and just have that repentive heart, that repentive spirit of, Lord, even if I think I haven't made it something that it isn't, I probably have. And so, Lord, wash that out of my heart. Will you sing this with us?